Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The best people in the business give of themselves and are and are there for you. Amen. Yes. Give of yourself. Do the best you can. Good things tend to happen. And if you're good enough, it's going to work out. That's kind of uh, kind of been where I where I've gone on this path, and I've been fortunate again. So excited for today's show, and we are brought to you by Roy's Umbrella. I've worked with Roy for a number of years, and trust me on this, folks, you can count on Roy's Umbrella for a very low rate on your home loan. No tricks, no nonsense, no extra charges at the end. And I'm telling you, you talk about loyalty, Roy has been incredibly loyal to me. He's kind of old-fashioned. He wants to do business face-to-face. He's going to treat you like family. For all of your home loan needs, go to roysumbrella.com. That's roysumbrella.com. My guest today worked at Fox for 14 years, then moved over to CBS Sports, where he is on the number two team with Iron Eagle. He's also a commentator for the Madden Gaming Series. And, of course, you used to see him do college football with Gus Johnson. Actually, we're going to go over his career, but he's done so many things before he even got into network television. It's an absolute pleasure to welcome to the show Charles Davis. Charles, how are you, sir? I'm doing well, Grant. What a pleasure to talk with you again. It's so great to hear your voice. I trust you and your family are doing as well as possible during these trying times we have in our world and fighting the pandemic, and uh, we're all trying to fight the good fight. Yeah, we absolutely are. We got so many things I wanted to talk to you. I found it interesting that you were born in Tennessee at an early age. I think you were two. Your family moved to New Paltz, New York, which is about 80 miles north of New York City, and then you end up going to Tennessee to play for the Tennessee Volunteers. How did that all come about? Oh, for me, it was, you know, as you described, my mom's family's from Elizabeth in Tennessee, where I was born. A lot of people would identify that with Jason Witten. Um, the former Cowboys, now with the Raiders uh, tight end. He played there for his grandfather, Coach Ryder, who's the legendary coach there, Elizabeth and High, home of the Cyclones. And I believe Jason's brother is now the head coach at Elizabeth. And wow. they're playing for state titles and the whole deal. So it's a pretty good line there. But um, yeah, I was born in Elizabeth. That's where my mom's family's from. Dad from West Virginia. As you said, we moved to New York State when I was two. Connor Tomaway was the reason I went back to Tennessee. Saw him play season opener, Tennessee-UCLA National TV, 1974, I believe. And just even at eight years old, Grant, I knew I was watching something different, meaning black quarterback, 1970s, deep south, what? And my dad was a quarterback in high school and in college. He played at Bluefield State in West Virginia, which is a historically black college and university at the time. It's now integrated. And I just remember looking back, the pride he had watching that happen because he wanted to go to West Virginia. My dad wanted to go play quarterback at West Virginia. And, of course, they weren't going to do that in 1950, you know, 55, 56. So here we are, 74. Even as an eight-year-old, intuitively, I knew something was different, and it was cool, and Condridge was phenomenal. And I told my dad that day, as he's recounted many times, yeah, I'm going to go to Tennessee. Now I want to go to Tennessee. I want to play quarterback. Well, I got to Tennessee. just didn't play quarterback. <laughs> <laughs> right. So it all, it, all, it all worked out. And you know the funny part, Grant? I never actually met Condridge until I graduated. Wow. Because he was playing in the CFL during that time. He was up there 
you know, winning their, their MVP a couple of times, winning Grey Cups, the whole thing. He He's a Hall of Famer in the Canadian Football League. So he wasn't around because, you know, they play summertime. So when we were over there working out, he was up there playing games. So I didn't actually meet him until I had graduated and was able to say, hey, I said, hey, I'm Charles Davis. And he goes, I already know the story. <laughs> oh, wow. How about that? Man, that's great. You know, there's so much attention, and rightfully so right now, on social justice and systemic racism. You grow up north of New York, as I said, about 80 miles. And then, you know, as an 18-year-old young man, you find yourself in Knoxville, Tennessee, playing for the Tennessee Volunteers. What was that like for you at that period of your life? Well, Grant, it was was interesting because having Southern family, I thought, you know, I'm fully prepared for this, right? Even though I grew up a northerner, you're not fully prepared. <laughs> There's no way. I don't care who you are, right? So people were wonderful. I wouldn't change a thing. You know, if, if they asked me, you know, where would you go to school? I'd go play at Tennessee and do that all again. I love the people there. I love being part of big orange country, the whole deal. But I was the outsider because it's easily stamped because you and I are northerners. And you know what that's like, Grant. You go to a place and you, as soon as we open our mouths, it's like a bad movie, right? Everybody sure. stops eating and they turn and stare. And you, you know, you, you might as well might as well have a scarlet letter on you. And I remember I called home once early in my time and said, "Dad, I don't know if I'm gonna make it here." He said, "What's the deal?" I said, "Well, everyone talks funny." And he started <laughs> laughing. I said, "Why are you laughing?" He goes, um, "Son, you're in the South, not the North. <laughs> you're the one that talks funny." <laughs> and I went, oh, now I get it. You know, it's just kind of you know, latching onto that. And as a very good friend told me during my career at Tennessee, he said, you know, Davis, when you first got here, you're just one of those damn Yankees. But now that you're starting for you're one of those, you, you're just a Yankee, and that's okay. We'll be all right with that. So <laughs> I love that, that. That's kind of, you know, yeah. kind of what it's like. You know, there's plenty more to it. But people are people are people. You treat people well. They treat you well as a general rule. You know, I mean, for the most part, that's how I live. And I think for the most part, that's what I see. I know it's not perfect. I'm not Pollyanna. I'm not stupid. I've lived through some things as well, but I refuse to give up the idea that for the most part, people are good to each other. Amen. You know, my mom was from Chattanooga. She was born and grew up on Lookout Mountain, and I used to go visit her brother and the family, and I couldn't understand a damn thing they were saying. But, you know, <laughs> as you said, I really couldn't. You know, I remember as a kid, I was like, I, I didn't really understand what they just told me. But, uh, yeah, the good old South, there's nothing like it. You know, growing up, as we said, now in New Paltz, as a kid, were you a big-time New York sports fan? Did you gravitate towards all the New York teams? I followed them all, obviously, because that's what you got. I was an extensive reader. I'd like to believe I still am at this stage. But I was very eclectic in my likes. I I, I grasped onto the Green Bay Packers in football. Um, In basketball, I was a Knicks fan, I would think. But I latched on to Magic Johnson when I watched him in college. And when he went to the Lakers, I I, I kind of became a Lakers fan, more because of Magic than anything else. Um, Baseball. I was a Pittsburgh Pirates fan. Wow. My first Little League team was the Pirates, and I wore number six. And I saw Rennie Stennett playing second base for the Pirates, and I thought that was very cool. Hmm. And I became a huge Pirates fan, and that has not waned. So it's just been one of those things where it's been eclectic. Now, if you press me on New York teams, I was a Giants fan over the Jets, even though I was a huge Joe Namath guy. Um, I was a Knicks guy over the Nets. Even though Dr. J and the Nets during the ABA, that was that was pretty phenomenal. And I went to the Billy Paul basketball camp, the Whopper. Sure. Uh, and then in, and in baseball, I would have been Yankees over the Mets. So that's just kind of how it would have been during that time frame. But my big likes were not necessarily New York teams, which was a little bit unusual. Oh yeah, by the way, Rangers. Yeah, over, over Islanders. I don't care how many Stanley Cup downs. <laughs> Dennis Potvin still sucks. <laughs> I love it. Uh, it's funny that you bring that up because uh, next week I'm having Kenny Albert on the podcast, and we're going to talk a lot of hockey with him. But yeah, <laughs> you still go to Madison Square Garden today, you know, in 2020. Well, hopefully uh, fans will be able to go in to uh, see uh, games. But uh, the Potvin sucks chant still comes out two or three times every Rangers out. game. Yeah, crazy. It has, it has to, and, and and no one loves it more than Dennis Potvin. <laughs> That's a great right? point. Yes. It's, it's, one of, it's one of the great things, and I, I know he loves it. I saw an interview with him once, and it's just for him, it's such a point of pride. 
and it's just become really kind of a cool thing. And frankly, I don't know how you feel about it, Grant. I think it's just much more of a respect. You Amen. know, when they do that now, oh, yes. it's, it's the Rangers fans giving him the respect that he is due. I'm right with you. Charles, you are uh, – it was fascinating because you and I have known each other and we've talked for uh, many, many years. But I didn't yeah. realize all of the steps that you took leaving Tennessee – to become a network announcer. I, I really, no, really. I mean, I would talk about truly paying your dues. You know, you go out and get a master's in history, but, you know, I didn't realize that you were an assistant athletic director at Stanford. You worked for Disney's mm-hmm. Wide World of Sports. You were the first African-American to be a tournament director of a PGA event. During that time, were you just really trying to find yourself and find that one thing that just really pushed your button? Yeah, I think I think that's a, a very fair way of saying it. Um, I always wanted to be a broadcaster, but I really didn't. I didn't understand the true steps. You know, my degrees were my, my degrees were political science and history. You know, my master's in history, political science, undergrad. So that wasn't exactly a career track. Now, a man by the name of Mike Moore, who I went to school with at Tennessee, and later a big time ESPN executive, he kind of got me started on it while I was in school. I did some, you know, local. You know, University of Tennessee, you know, stuff, but nothing that just really propelled me, what have you. I did a spring game on radio with the legendary John Ward. Mr. Ward asked me to do a spring game with him, and I didn't know what I was doing. He taught me so many lessons that day. But again, I started working, just as you said, with all these different jobs, and none of them were leading towards being a, a broadcaster. And I just got lucky. And Mark Whitworth, former um, associate commissioner of the Southeastern Conference, he was at Tennessee when I was at Tennessee. He worked in the SID department, sports information department. And he apparently gave my name to an executive at Fox, Fox South and said, hey, I think this guy could be a good analyst. And they're like, well, what does he do? He goes, he doesn't do anything. He hasn't done anything. I just want you to you ought to check him out and give him an opportunity. And the guy had my card for two years. His name's Steve Craddock. He's still with Fox nowadays. And got jammed up. Needed someone desperately. Eight days before the first game, called me, gave me, you know, gave me the opportunity. I didn't know what I was doing. I did the best I could. I got another opportunity. And then, you know how it goes, Grant, because you worked your way through it as well. You try to keep building reps. You try and keep getting opportunities. And I'm fortunate to be where I am today. And every summer, I send a thank you note to Mark Whitworth Wow, for seeing something, believing something, who knew. But without him, I never have this opportunity. I probably, I might still be at Disney working, you know, hopefully building a career that way. But that's what, um, that's that's where it all started, and that's who I really, really owe at its core. And of course, plenty of people along the way, you know, producers, directors, executive producers, people who gave me chances, you know, molded me, taught me things. Bob Rathbun, first game I ever did, my mentor. We love him. Know, love I the man. Go, I, love him. Isn't he phenomenal? He's the best. You know, I love the guy. He's phenomenal. Mentor yep. right yep. out of the gate. Gave me, gave me critiques. You know, hey, try this. Hey, think about this. Hey, don't do that. You know, really guided me, but guided me with care. You know, and that's the thing about so many so many people in our business. You can speak to everyone out there, Grant, I believe, and tell them, hey, look, it's a wonderful business we're in. Is it a competitive business? Without a doubt. But the best people in the business give of themselves. And they're, and they're there for you. Amen. Yes. <laughs> you will fight it out. You will battle for jobs. I'll just leave it with this. The best I've been in this business and the better opportunities have come my way when I have fully given of myself to other people. Amen. When I've tried to hold on, when I've tried to, hold on to my spot and, 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 and know I'm not going to help that person because they may take my spot, things didn't go very well. And, you know, and it's just, I know for some people that hear my voice, they're like, God, oh, my, that's an esoteric, you know what? But it's real. Give of yourself, do the best you can. Good things tend to happen. And if you're good enough, it's going to work out. That's kind of uh, kind of been where, I, where I've gone on this path, and I've been fortunate again. Uh, it's so awesome to hear that. Pay it forward. And I'll tell you, thank you goes a long way. In 19, I started doing the Kings, Charles, in 1988. And in 19... A year before that, I came from uh, Decatur, Illinois, 
and I was the sports director at a small, unknown station, Channel 31 in Sacramento. Nobody watched Channel 31. It was reruns of I Love Lucy and the Three Stooges, and but they had a newscast, and so I moved from Decatur to Sacramento. I had been covering the Big Ten with Champaign, Illinois. Lou Henson was the basketball coach, and yep. uh, what I witnessed in Sacramento, they had a, a, an arena, Arco 1, 10,333, and I would go to all the games as a you know sports uh, director getting ready for my cast on the news at night and about halfway through that year uh, I wrote a handwritten letter to the general manager of the Kings his name is Joe Axelson now I had no idea that I would ever be announcing for the Kings it really wasn't in my mind it was just a thank you and it was I it was basically hey Joe I just want to say thank you so much your entire staff has treated me like I've been in this community for 20 years and I've only been here for a couple months and I and I said I really hope the people of this community fully appreciate how lucky they are to have an NBA team. And I said, because I just came from the Champaign, Illinois area, and this reminds me of Big Ten country. Fast forward a couple of months ago, the general manager at the TV station uh, called me into his office one day and he said, have you ever announced basketball before? And I said, yeah, since I was eight years old. He goes, no, seriously. I said, no, I've been announcing <laughs> basketball. <laughs> yeah, on exactly. the play- yeah, seriously. Yes, I was very honest with him. And he said, okay, well, we're trying to get the Kings contract. And if we do, I'd like you to be uh, the announcer. And my heart just stopped, you know, and my hair went up on my arms. And anyway... Fast forward another month, he calls me into the office again, and he said, um, I just got some good news from the Sacramento Kings. We we won the rights to televise the games, and Joe Axelson said he loves you, and so you are the new TV announcer for the Sacramento Kings. And the first phone call I made was to my dad, and it was the greatest phone call I've ever had in my life growing up in New York, yeah. going to Madison Square Garden, Yankee Stadium, but, and I'm going in a, in a roundabout way here. But thank you goes a long way in this business. And I'm so happy that you said that because I had Mike Breen on a couple of weeks ago. And Mike told me that before every NBA Finals, he takes a lot of time to thank those that are largely responsible for him being in that position, and he will never forget it. And we can never forget where we started. We can never forget all of the hard work, everything that we went through. But a thank you goes a long way, and I'm very glad you brought that up. Yeah, it's, it's just, you know, it's – our business, it's life. You know, I realize we don't handwrite things the way we used to. I still try to, but I'm not going to tell you I'm 100%, right? We have this technology that allows us to email and text. And for the people sending it, it's really no less heartfelt. You know, I mean, we always read articles, you know, the handwritten note is still, I get it. And, And I would like to do that all the time. And I think most people would too. But being able to express thanks is paramount. Yes. Whether you're doing it by email, whether you're doing it by text, whether you and I are on the phone talking to each other, whoever it is, be able to thank those that helped you get there. I mean, your talent, your work, that helped you get there, you yep. know, that, obviously. But other people had to either believe in you or give you an opportunity or a second chance or, you know, all those things. So, yeah, I, I love hearing that when people like Mike Green do it. And that, that tells you how valuable and, and, and how powerful it is. I want to get into the NFL, but I want to first ask you, commentator for the unbelievably popular Madden gaming series, do you think more people identify you as a NFL football commentator or through <laughs> or through the Madden gaming? Which I, I seriously <laughs> You know, it's funny. Up until the last couple of years I actually got more for Golf Channel. Wow. Because I did a show for Golf Channel called the Grey Goose Nineteenth Hole. It's me. Kelly Tillman typically hosted. Vince Cellini hosted a lot. Um, and a man by the name of Steve Dumick. Remember that show, no. The Big Break? Yes. He was the star of the first big break. He didn't win it, but he was the dominant personality, the big dog. Yes. And we just lost Steve last summer. Right. Um, cancer cancer got him. And yep. Missed the big dog. But he and I were put together to do this brand new show called The, the, the Great Goose 19th Hole. And because you're on camera, for a 30-minute show, 22 minutes of it, essentially, right? Mm-hmm. People see your face and identify you. So up until a couple of years ago, Grant, I would still get people, and, and occasionally I still do, will go, oh, my God, love you on the Golf Channel, or, wow, I just saw you on the Golf Channel. I was like, this is on me. I haven't been on since 2005. But it just tells you, the, you know, when your face is on there. Because of the Madden game, face isn't in the game. Right, there's this small little thing that pops up for about a nanosecond of me and my partner, and that's it. So it's just our voices. 
So I do a lot of, you know, we do NFL games, and there's not a weekend that goes by that there's not a Madden reference in a production meeting or by a player or someone, but rarely do I get connected with the game. Rarely. Because it's just mainly voice. The gamers know, okay? But anyone outside of that, oh, Madden, whatever, I don't really get connected that way. So it's, it's an interesting thing, but a lot of it I think is just simply when they see your face, the connection's a lot stronger than just hearing your voice. Charles, chemistry is so important with your broadcast partner, but because of the pandemic and the fact that you had never worked with Iron Eagle before, no preseason games, what was that process like getting ready for your first game? We spent the entire time from the time I came on board and, and was fortunate enough to get this spot next to Ian and working with Evan Washburn as well. We just kind of said to each other, well, we've got to get to know each other. <laughs> so we started doing weekly Zooms. And we would get on Zoom and we'd go and, you know, just chat it up for 40, 45 minutes, whatever amount of time Zoom came us, gave us. We were too cheap to buy extra time. So we took, we took the free time and, and rolled with it. But once a week we would get on and do that. And I would say 95% of the conversation was just getting to know each other. 5% or less was really about us doing games and, you know, ball and other things like that. The chemistry aspect, as you know, because you've had partners over the years, if you like your partner and you're invested in your partner, it's going to be a better broadcast. No question. Can, can, can you do it without it? Oh, yeah. And I'm not going to use names, but you and I both know. Mm-hmm partners in our business that really don't like each other but somehow pull off a broadcast i just think it's better when you're invested with each other and again you don't have to like everything about your partner they don't have to like everything about you but but respect each other care about each other have each other's back when you can yeah that means a lot and i think that that's what we were trying to build before our first game we didn't even do a practice game wow you know we, we just you know our producer mark wolf was like look a practice game by zoom is that really going to get us what we're wanting? Let's just keep getting to know each other. So we did that with me, Ian, and Evan. Then we brought in Mark Wolf and Bob Fishman, our director. And the five of us would do the weekly Zooms. And that's how we started to try and build our chemistry. And we continue to try and do that. And we look forward to the time where we can all actually be in a room together. You just did a game with Lamar Jackson, and the Ravens are 6-2. and two, And I thought he was brilliant in the second half. But yet, yeah. I've heard more criticism about him this year. Of course, we know what he did last year, the MVP of the league. I love watching him. I'm fascinated in watching how he plays. How are you? How do you evaluate how he is in the middle of his this season following the MVP? Yeah, I think that he's going through the normal bumps that superstars go through, especially when you ascend to the level he did in such a fast fashion. Right, there's usually a buildup before you're the MVP of a league, isn't there? His second year, sure. yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Yeah. And, he, and he was the quarterback that was the last one taken in his class in the first round. Mm-hmm. Remember the, the, the Ravens, Ozzy Ozzy Newsom's last huge move as the GM of the Ravens was a trade back into the first round and take him. So I, I think these are normal things. To use a baseball analogy, that guy comes out, hits 400 the first you know month of the season, and then he gets to go through the league another time, and now they've watched him, and now all of a sudden here comes a good curveball, and here comes the other thing. Can you adjust to that? Because they're going to adjust to you, and the league is trying to adjust. And I think he's doing his adjusting now as well. And I thought the second half, as you pointed out, he did that. And I thought he was brilliant in the second half, and he played with more confidence than I'd seen in the last few weeks. So I think that he's going through those bumps, but I have no doubt in my mind he'll come out the other side and continue to be one of the top players in our league. We see young quarterbacks have so much success now in the NFL where, you know, 15, 20 years, 25 years ago, especially when you and I were growing up, that never happened. I mean, Dan Marino was so few and far between what he did in his rookie year, and that was so astounding. You look at what Justin Herbert's doing. You see what Patrick Mahomes did, you know, after watching Alex Smith play for a year, and then he stepped in and looked like he was the greatest quarterback to ever live. And I can go around and name some others around the league. Why do you think so many young quarterbacks are finding success early in their NFL careers? I think that as a general rule, Young people are more, and I use the word precocious all the time, it's probably overused, but they don't have the same fear factor and they don't have the same reverence that we were brought up to have. And that's not a knock 
And I know as soon as I said it, people were like, oh, get off my lawn. Here he comes. <laughs> right. That's not my point. That's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm saying is we were brought up to have such a reverence that it was almost fear, wasn't it, Grant? Mm-hmm. Remember when you were a freshman in high school? Oh, my God, they're the seniors. Right? Sure. And you went down the hall with your head down, your eyes looking at your feet. Please, God, don't let them feel me breathe. These kids now, those freshmen, they come down the hall and like, yo, seniors, I'm coming for you. And in so many ways, that's a very positive thing. They have confidence because they're playing and doing things at a higher level than we ever did. The opportunities are there for them to go to camps, not just the one that the Y is giving down the street, but these nationally sponsored camps where they see the like type players of theirs from across the country. Remember when we were playing, Grant? If you went one county over, it was a big deal. Oh, sure. Absolutely. These kids are getting on planes in high school and flying to play nationally televised games. Football, basketball, the whole deal, right? They're going to camps in the summertime and meeting the best of the best of their age group. And they're forming relationships, friendships. They're connecting on social media. They're doing all these things. They have private coaches. They have all this stuff that goes on. And all these are positives for these young people because they come out ready to go. They're not awed by their surroundings. Oh, I'm going to play my first game at – pick a school, right? I'm going to play my first game at Michigan with 110,000 people. Yeah, that's cool. Last year, I played in front of 40,000 on a Friday night that was nationally televised. I can can do this. (laughs) See, my first time, 110,000 people almost almost had a heart attack. Sure. Okay? You didn't see that in New Paltz, New York. These kids, whole different deal. They're really precocious. They do more at a younger age. They get coached better at a younger age. Yeah, that that's a big reason why I think we're seeing what we're seeing. Plus, the college game has changed to the point where it's not Woody Hayes, Bo Beckler, three yards in a cloud of dust. These kids are throwing the ball like crazy in college. So that has to translate well when they when they move up to the NFL. And last but not least, <laughs> the NFL is welcoming it now. You remember when the NFL just didn't welcome it at all. They're that's like, true. no, that's, that's, that's Joe College stuff. We don't do that nonsense. <laughs> Watch a game now, it's almost indistinguishable at times between the college offense and a pro offense. You made such a great point growing up in a a small town like New Paltz and playing quarterback, and you were a big star, but you're playing in front of, what, a couple of hundred people maybe, a Mm -hmm. thousand? Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden you find yourself in Nayland Nayland Stadium, you find yourself in the SEC – Okay, and you go in to Tuscaloosa or you go into Ellis, Baton Rouge, and you have literally 80, 90, 100,000 people. How how do you get used to that? What was that process like for someone like yourself coming from such a small area? Well, I redshirted first. My first year I redshirted. We weren't sure I was. There's a possibility I would play as a freshman when I moved to defensive back. And the first road trip we had back then the traditional sec opener for tennessee was auburn right we would always open with each other and we went to auburn and there's a lot going on with that one pat, coach pat diet got in there and he was you know making them what he wanted to call the king of the hard noses and you know he had this really physical team bo jackson was a freshman that year wow um look their backfield they're running the wishbone ramp their starting quarterback randy campbell wore a full cage face mask. <laughs> okay. I love it. Were, right? <laughs> right. And, and his fullback was, um, Tom was, um, I think Ron O'Neill and Tom, and then Tom Agee came in the next year. But the two halfbacks were Lionel Little Train James and wow. Bo Jackson. Wow. Okay. So that's what you were dealing with, blah, 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 blah. I was a freshman. Went sure I was going to play. Early in the game, we ran a little screen to our tight end, Kenny Jones. And Kenny was about 250-pound tight end, which was monstrous in 1982 and they had these two safeties mark dormany and jim bob harris and they were called the bruise b-r-u-i-s-e brothers and early in the game they ran that little screen to kenny and i forgot which one i don't know if it's dormany or jim bob harris one of them read it i think it was dormany and came underneath the block and hit kenny under his chin with a helmet and the first thing that hit was the back of Kenny's head on the ground, and the ball was just laying on his chest, and that place went berserk. Mm. We were down at Auburn, 
And I was standing next to my roommate, and we were trying to say something to each other, and we were literally hugging each other and couldn't hear each other at all. Mm. Wow. That was my first taste of true SEC football. And I got used to it, quote unquote, by observing it. And then the next year, when I was after my redshirt year, I started to play. But you can only truly get used to it, Grant, by doing it. But that's why I go back to these kids nowadays. They do some of this, so much of this stuff along the way that it doesn't really, it's not something they have to get used to. It's just something that they embrace more so than have to get used to it. You know, with the work that you do for the NFL Network and you go to the Senior Bowl and the scouting combines and everything else, what just fascinates me is how many of the quote-unquote greatest football minds in the world make so many mistakes at the quarterback position, <laughs> right? I mean, you mentioned Lamar yeah. Jackson. You talk about Patrick Mahomes. We've looked at Mitchell Trubisky, all right? The Bears made a huge deal and gave up so much to move from three to two with the 49ers. And you look at other quarterbacks that have been taken very high and they turn out to be, for lack of a better term, just bust. And then you take a look at, I, I love watching Deshaun Watson play. I mean, if the draft yeah. were held all over again, I can guarantee you one thing, he would be right near the top of the draft. What is it about that position? And again, I know you you were an outstanding quarterback in high school, and you've got definitely a different perspective of the position than I do. Why do you think it's so difficult and so many mistakes are made with the greatest minds evaluating this position? We have so many of us doing it, and I can't speak for teams because I don't do it for a team, right? I'm not involved in that swirl, but I have a decent idea of how it goes. And I, you know, when we talk about making mistakes, I'm right there with them. All right. Cause when I go back and look, if, if you and I had time and we went through different drafts, I would point out my mistakes to you. Hey, I had this guy ahead of this guy, I had that guy ahead of that guy. I didn't have this guy high enough. I had this guy too high. You know, all those things that go with it, because remember at the end of the day, it's still subjective. It's still what you believe, what you see, but other circumstances come into play as well. If this, if that young man you take doesn't hit the right situation with the right coach at the right place, he may still be a good player, but he's just in the wrong spot. You know, if, if, if this quarterback had gone to that team, that would have worked better for him than he went to this team. And those, there's no way of always knowing that. Look, Deshaun Watson, in a lot of cases, was thought to be the best quarterback in his class. Trubisky got jumped and elevated by Chicago. I think they'd probably love to have that back at this stage. But the crazy part was Patrick Mahomes was like our biggest wild card at that time. Remember? Sure. Knew the talent was there. God yep. for what, God, he threw it 81 times, I think, in one game against Oklahoma. So what, we weren't worried about getting a number of throws on air. But we were the big, the so-called knock against Patrick was he takes too many chances. Is he a guy that can, you can throttle down? You see where I'm going? Mm -hmm. And sometimes we overthink things, Grant. Sometimes we underthink it. There's just so many factors to go with it. <laughs> and I, I, I'm not going to use his name because I don't know that I have permission to. But someone with a Super Bowl ring, with 40 years in the business, looked me dead in the eye probably 10 years ago and said, we can do this all day, all night, 24-7. I'm firmly convinced that if I throw a dart <laughs> off the board, I'll be darn near the same deal when it comes to breaking down certain guys. So he's not saying the scouting doesn't mean anything. What he's saying is that sometimes it becomes that, that this one hits and that one does not. Why? Because, you know, one of my colleagues, you know, Brady Quinn, how he did not become a successful NFL player still boggles me because no one worked harder. No one studied harder. No one put more into their body. I mean, Brady went to the combine and benched. How many quarterbacks benched? Wow, that's right. All right? He yep. did 24 at 225. Wow. Man was serious about his game. Okay? It wasn't like he just went in and just kind of wasted the opportunity. He didn't do the Ryan Lee. Right? He went in and attacked it. But it didn't work. Well, he went to Cleveland first. You know? And for the longest time, if you went to Cleveland, it wasn't going to work no matter what you did. So it, it, I guess what I'm trying to say is we're all going to make these evaluations. Anyone who goes around and thumps their chest and goes, well, you know, I know these quarterbacks. I'll nail them. I, I'm going to say, give me your 10-year record. I want to see. Because quarterbacks are a funny animal. 
and a lot of it depends on where you put them, what you get. Tim Couch at the University of Kentucky, when Coach Bill Curry, one of my favorite people in the world was there, was running an option-based offense, was not <laughs> the Tim Couch sure. that became the number one pick overall with Hal Mummy throwing it around. Still a great player, still the same prospect, but we never would have seen him in the same light because of the circumstance of the offense he was in. So sometimes it comes down to that. Last thing for you, Charles, when you look back at your career to this point, you've been blessed to do the Super Bowl on the international feed. You did the big time college football games with Gus Johnson on Fox. Uh, I mean, gosh, you can even go back earlier in your career. Sideline reporter at the NCAA men's basketball tournament. You talk about Golf Channel. You talk about maybe earlier in your career, you know, working in radio. Do you have a favorite moment in your career or a game that you did that you look back and go, man, I can't believe I was a part of that? <laughs> Probably a few. I'll boil it down and be quick on them. Fiesta Bowl, Boise State, Oklahoma. First BCS game I did with Tom Brennan and Barry Alvarez. Game, of course, was off the charts. Um, but I think it helped my career in this way. My bosses at the time were David Hill, Ed Gorin, Bill Brown. Wow. Late in the ball game, you remember when we got to overtime, Adrian Peterson cut right through him for the first score, and it looked like Boise State was done slugging, like they'd done all they could. It was, it was, and so I said to myself mentally, Oof, if Boise scores here, do they want to keep punching with these guys, or do they go for two? And they score. And before I could stop myself, I said, I'm going for two here because I think this is it. They punch as long as they can with Oklahoma, you know, whatever I said. Mm -hmm. But I think they go for two here. And they did and ran the Statue of Liberty and scored and went on. Now, I don't say that to say, oh, wow, look at me. I picked out a, you know, that wasn't it at all. My point being, I took a chance, but I thought it was an educated chance. Later on, one of my bosses pulled me aside and said, boy, I heard you say go for two. And I said, boy, I'll try push the chips into the middle of the table there. <laughs> And then he patted me and said, well done, and walked away. And what he was telling me was, well, if you missed that one, kid, your career trajectory might have gone a different direction. Wow. So those are the things you remember. But we had that run there. That We had that run of that because Boise State, Oklahoma, the very next week was Florida. People forget Florida upset Ohio State in that national championship game. Ohio State was a decided favorite. And Florida upset them and blew them away. And I think we had Appalachian State, Michigan. I don't think. I know we had it. I can't remember if it started that season or it started the next season. <laughs> but that was how Big Ten Network came on air. Me, Tom Brennan, and Carissa Thompson. That was the first event they ever had on Big Ten Network air. It was Appalachian State, Michigan. And we did that game. So some of those events kick in. And, of course, you know, working at Fox, I did my first playoff game there a couple of years ago with Kevin Burkhardt. Because Philadelphia, New Orleans. I've had a number of them, but those immediately come to mind. That story reminds me real quickly of Tiger Woods' putt on the 16th at Augusta, the great call by Vern Lundquist, where the ball oh. just rolled in with the Nike logo, and the director had asked to do a cut to get to Tiger, and the technical director had a hunch to just stay on it for another count and then the ball rolled into the hole, and I believe the story was that the director and you know ended up buying this guy like the most amazing gift. Because can you imagine? Seriously, can you imagine if they had cut away from the ball oh, actually falling into it? the hole? I mean, seriously. Oh, great! You, you know what we would have had? We would have had a firestorm of how did it get in the hole? Was there something <laughs> funny that happened? Should it have gone? Right? Yep. Because if people don't see it. But what you just pointed out, and I'll stop here, is something that I've always thought was very prescient that was said by Bum Phillips, the great coach with the Oilers. Sure. And he said, there's two ball players that aren't worth a darn to me. And that's a player that does everything I tell him to do. That's a player that never does what I tell him to do. <laughs> you got to know when in between that to either break the rules or follow the rules. But, but, but I can't tell you when. You just have to know. And that's what that technical director did. Yep. He didn't follow the rule because he had a hunch and he took the shot. Yep. You know? Got to yep. give him credit. Bum Phillips talking about Earl Campbell. He may not be in a class by himself, but it doesn't take long to call the roll, right? <laughs> no, it does not. No, it does 
not. Well, and oh God, he's one of the best, and his son Wade is, is is just like him, and he's one of the best as well. He'll never truly get his due as a coach because the head coaching didn't go quite as well as they wanted it to. But as a defensive coordinator, as a football mind, one of the absolute best the games ever. Seen. Well, I would say the same about you. You're not in a class by yourself, but it doesn't take long to call the role. Uh, over the years, there are very few people in this business that I've respected more than you. I am so happy for your success. It is always great to catch up with you, and I cannot thank you enough for coming on. If you don't like that today, uh, great stuff, Charles. Really appreciate it. And, uh, have a great rest of the season working with an Iron Eagle and CBS, and uh, we'll do this again in the not-too-distant future. I look forward to it, Grant. You're one of my one of my favorites, one of my mentors, one of my, one of my great supporters, and we talked about thank yous. This is my thank you to you. I, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you and wish you and your family all the best. And we're approaching holiday season, so happy holiday season to everyone. And I look forward to talking to you soon. Uh, you're the best. That's Charles Davis joining us today. What a great conversation. It's now time for a little Q&A. And if you go to crowdquestion.com, you can ask me a question. And maybe I'll answer it right here on the podcast. We're also going to start taking voice questions. So, again, go to crowdquestion.com. It's very easy to sign up. All right. The first question comes from Corey, your favorite sports movie. Wow. I'm going to have to go go all the way back many decades ago to Brian's song. Gail Sayers, Brian Piccolo. I would say that. I love the blind side. But it's tough to just nail it down to one. But, Corey, those are those are two right there. All right, Griffiths, after 32 years with the Kings, you undoubtedly have some lifelong friendships. We heard from Jerry Reynolds. Who else are some of your other closest friends? And are there some behind-the-curtain stories you feel comfortable sharing? Love the podcast. Be well. I've got so many friends in my 32 years, uh, starting back in the 80s. Reggie Theus is a dear friend of mine. Spud Webb is truly uh, an incredible friend of mine. I stay in touch with Spud. I love Spud to death. Uh, I'm going to get him on uh, the podcast uh, in one of these uh, coming weeks. Uh, Wayman Tisdale was an absolute dear friend of mine. And uh, Regina and their family, they were great. Um, I was young, single. And they always had an open door policy over the holidays. I was over at, you know, the Tisdales for Thanksgiving. It was just a just a family atmosphere back then. It was so great. Uh, and then, of course, you know, Vladi, Peja, Hito, they're all great friends of mine. Scott Pollard's one of my closest friends. So uh, I've got a lot of friends. Are there any stories? Gosh, I could write a book on this. You know, I've actually debated whether I should write a book because I have so many you know, amazing stories. One of the stories that is one of my fondest memories in my 32 years of covering uh, the NBA up close and personal, uh, Spud Webb, uh, I consider him a dear friend of mine. And Spud had just built a 7,500-square-foot home on the golf course at his club. I think it was called Thorn Tree, right next to Tim Brown, the Hall of Famer from the Raiders. And I was in Dallas earlier than the team because back then we didn't do every game. And I was flying to Dallas commercially, and the team was coming in from somewhere else. So anyway, uh, I met Spud hours before the team arrived, because Spud had arranged to have a bus bring the team to his house uh, for kind of a housewarming party. He was so proud uh, of this home. But anyway, uh, I ended up being with Spud, and he sh- I go out to Spud's house, and he was so proud. I just will never forget that day. He was so proud to show me his home. And then we got in his car, and he went to a salon that his sisters ran, and we we talked with them for a while. And then we're driving through a neighborhood, and he goes, what do you think of this house right here? He goes, like, based on California to here, he goes, what do you think that house would cost? And I gave him a, an estimate. He said, I'm, I want to take you inside this house. I said, you're going to take me inside the house? He said, yeah, I want to show you something. So we get out of the car. We walk up to the front door, and he goes, this is the house I bought my mom, and I want you to come in and meet my mom. And I was just so, like, appreciative of Spud. And with everything that's going on in 2020 and cancel culture and the division with, you know, Democrats, Republicans, it seems like with, you know, racial issues. And the thing I always admired about Spud is he truly did not judge you by the color of your skin. He truly judged you by the content of your character. And we 
walked into his mother's house and we were there for 30, 45 minutes. And then we went back to his house to get ready for the team to, uh, you know, arrive. And in all my years of doing this, that's truly one of my fondest uh, memories. I've always appreciated Spud that he did look at who you were. Um, Let's face it, I'm going to be brutally honest, as I always am. You know, it may not have been the most popular thing with Spud's teammates for him to be hanging out with, you know, the TV announcer. And Spud didn't care. He, He didn't care. He was going to do what he wanted to do. Uh, I always respected the hell out of him. He is somebody that I will, I would do anything for Spud Webb. I would do absolutely anything for Spud. So that's one of the behind the scenes stories. I've told it before uh, when I was doing my show in Sacramento, but if you have not heard that story before, that's one of the, one of the great days that I had on an off day uh, in the uh, NBA. Uh, Phil says, what are some of your favorite sports memories with your sons? That's another great question. I started taking Trent, my oldest son, to his first Giants game was at age four. Yankee game with my father, I think he was three. And both he and my other son, we have been to a lot of great sporting events. There were two that stick out. Uh, 2007, the Giants had won their wild card game and they were playing the number one seed Cowboys at the, the old Texas Stadium. And I got tickets on StubHub, and we flew to Dallas, and we arrived hours before the game. And we get in a taxi, and we go to the parking lot. And it was a beautiful day in January. And, of course, we were in all of our Giants gear. There were a lot of people with Giants gear, a lot of New Yorkers and a lot of Giants fans down in Texas. But... We're throwing the football around, and we're just having a great time. And this guy walks up to me wearing a Giants jersey, and he's with his wife who's got a Cowboys jersey. And they go, hey, where are you guys from? And I said, well, I'm, we're, I'm from New York originally, but we live in Sacramento, and, you know, we just came, we've just flew in for the game. He goes, hey, come with us. He goes, we've got a whole bunch of people over here. We're tailgating. We've got food. You, you can join us. And we were just hanging out with Cowboys fans and Giants fans, and they treated us great. And I've always said this about the people in Texas, and my wife is from Dallas, and it's so true. The people in Texas are so freaking nice. They really are. And the Giants won that game. We were sitting about 20, 25 rows off the field in the end zone. And, you know, we didn't get ridiculed. We didn't get cursed at. You know, we we were cheering for our team. We had no issues leaving the game. Uh, it was a great experience. But the best experience was when uh, we went to the Giants Super Bowl for the second time against New England in Indianapolis. Great story. Saturday night, I'm doing the Kings-Warriors game at uh, Arco Arena. And our flight leaves in San Francisco on a red eye through Dallas at 1220. The game was in Indianapolis. And so it's going to be a tight call, and I had my uh, I paid my intern to drive my car, okay, uh, back from San Francisco because we were flying back into. Well, I'll, I'll I'll tell you that story. I want to I'll get to that part when we get to that part. But anyway, the game goes to overtime. The game did not end until ten o'clock. Now it's the Kings and the Warriors. Place is packed, and after the game, and after I get off there, I bolt out to the car with my two boys and John. And I drive, and we end up getting to San Francisco. I kid you not, by the time we go through security, by the time we run to the gate, we were the last people to make the flight. And we get to Dallas, and we had about an hour and 45 minutes, two-hour layover, and the place was empty. You know, it's very early in the morning. And I told my kids, hey, get a nap. You're going to need to rest. And they did. They, they stretched out, and they, they got a little sleep. Then we flew to Indianapolis, and it was a beautiful day. And uh, the the city of Indianapolis did such an amazing job. And as soon as we were allowed into Lucas Oil Stadium, we went in and we just experienced everything that there was to experience at the Super Bowl. And then the Giants win the game. We hung out in Indianapolis for about two hours after the game. But 
I had to be in New Orleans the next night to do the Kings game against New Orleans, and I had to get my kids back on the plane because they had to go to school. So after hanging out in Indianapolis for two hours, we drove some three hours to Chicago, and I got a hotel uh, near the airport in Chicago and at Midway, and we got about, what, two, three hours sleep maybe because I put them on their flight, and then an hour later, my flight left, and uh, we just had the, the best time. So th- those are some of the great memories, you know, with my kids. Um, there's nothing like being, I've always said this in sports, whether you're with your dad or your mom or your aunt, your uncle, what brother or sister, there's just something about sports and the memories that you can have uh, from being at events. And I, I've got thousands of them, not hundreds. I've got thousands of them. All right. Somebody said, Danny, are there any teams that if they offered you a play-by-play job, you'd turn it down? I haven't even thought about that. Would I turn it down? I would, yeah. I, I If it wasn't a right fit for me and and it, the, 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 the city wouldn't have anything to do with it, but it would have to be... Uh, and again, I don't want to sound greedy here. I would love to go back and do play by play again. And I hope I get another opportunity, but I can't say I would 100% take any job that would be offered to me. So could I see myself turning down a job? I could, but I'll cross that bridge when I get to it. But that is a, uh, a very, very uh, good question. Luke says, what do you think student athletes could or should do about making the most of missed opportunities from COVID. I've had this discussion with a lot of my friends who have had sons and daughters that have missed a lot of things. I mean, there are people that have missed, they've had to cancel weddings. I mean, there are people that have not been able to mourn the loss of a loved one because you can't get together and have a memorial service and a funeral. So this is a great question because I've had this discussion for our young people in particular, okay, that are involved in a sport, and we'll keep this to sports, I, I can't even imagine preparing and being so excited to go into maybe your senior year and you're getting ready to play football or you're the captain on your basketball team. And uh, I, I try to teach history and t- t- different times in life and some of the difficult circumstances that our country has gone through and just try to love and support those that have been so affected with their routines. But you say make the most of missed opportunities uh, from COVID. I think you got to have a real good support group. Uh, I really do. I think it's a fabulous question, and I could probably spend an hour uh, talking about this. But it's, um, and again, we've all been affected in, in different degrees, right? We've all been affected. I don't know if there's a person that has not been affected with their lives based on uh, this pandemic. But for our youth and everything that they, you know, not being able to go to school, not being able to be with their friends, not being able to play sports, not being able to be in the band. I mean, not being able to be in drama class. I mean, I can go on and on. Uh, It's absolutely brutal. There's no question. Somebody wants to know, will you have any more past or present Kings players on the pod? Absolutely, 100%. Uh, No question about it. I will definitely be having uh, mostly former players. I will definitely have a lot of former players on. So no question about that. All right. And then finally, Dan, what do you think about Pete Rose not being in the Hall of Fame? And do you think he will ever make the Hall of Fame? I don't think he ever will. I'll say this about gambling and baseball. The one thing about Pete Rose, had he not lied, he would be in the Hall of Fame. But I think his year after year after year after year of denial and lying, is the reason why. I would also say this. On every single clubhouse in Major League Baseball, it tells you about what happens if you gamble on the sport. So had Pete come forward and been truthful out of the gate, I think he'd be in the Hall of Fame. And I think that's uh, I think that's why he's not. Do I think he should be in the Hall of Fame? No, I don't for those reasons. Today's rant is brought to you by New Works Plumbing, locally owned in Sacramento for 20 years. Leak detection, water line repairs, plumbing repair, 
bathroom plumbing, repiping for Kytec and copper pipes. New Works Plumbing is a full-service plumbing solution. No matter how small or how large your plumbing problem, they've got a fix for you. New Works Plumbing has experienced technicians on call 24-7. For all of your plumbing needs, check out newworksplumbing.com. That's N-E-W-W-R-X-Plumbing.com. Yesterday, I did my rant on James Harden and the Houston Rockets. Here we are 24 hours later, and now it's been reported, and The Athletic had a great story on this about all the things going on in the Houston Rockets that Russ has asked the front office to trade him. Said he doesn't like the style of play. The uh, story in The Athletic talked about how uh, several former players and current players talked about the culture and the star treatment, which means the star treatment to James Harden. And I've been through this before, folks. you got to trust me on this. I've been around, and I've seen the star treatment. It does not work, all right? When you center everything and make different rules and cater to just one individual, your team, unless it's a Michael Jordan or it's a LeBron James, nah, not going to work. And I said yesterday, how many big games, elimination games in the playoffs, big games has James Harden absolutely not gotten the job done, all right? You can't put him in that category that I said with LeBron and Michael Jordan. If I'm running the Rockets, and and believe me, I'm not, we get that, but if I'm running the Rockets, what's the saying? Better to trade a player a year too soon than a year too late. I would seriously consider trading James Harden. If the culture is really an issue, as reported in The Athletic and some of the other things that are going on there, why not hit the reset button? You could get a lot for not only Russ, but for James Harden. Now, I want to get back to Russ for a moment. He's due $131 million the next three seasons. He just celebrated his 32nd birthday yesterday. And how about the Houston Rockets coming out on social media and wishing him a happy birthday the same day that he asked for a trade? I mean, come on now, really? But Russ, 32 years of age, plays guard and can't shoot. You want a guy that can't shoot? I don't. He's going to make a living going to the basket, which he is great at. He's dynamite, all right? I love watching Russ play. But he is not going to be able to stay healthy, in my opinion, at this age, playing that style of basketball. So I'll ask you. I'm going to make you a general manager. You're going to pay Russ for three years, and you're going to be on the hook for $131 million? I'm sure not. But I know there are teams out there that will. But the Houston Rockets, they seem like they got some real issues. We know they got a new coach. They have a new general manager, but if they keep Harden, they got the same story. Good team, fun to watch, 50-plus wins until the playoffs start, and then you're like, gee, the Rockets lost another playoff series. What do they do now? I don't like this story in Houston. If I'm a Rockets fan, uh uh-uh. I don't like what I'm hearing. I don't like what I'm hearing. I don't like what's going on. I have to be disappointed in all the playoff failures. Remember the series against the Warriors, you're up 3-2. Your team couldn't get the job done because of the philosophy. Live by the three, die by the three. Well, you died by it, and once again, Harden came out absolutely empty. So if you're a Rockets fan, good luck. Have fun watching a team win 50 games in a regular season and then lose again in the playoffs because that's exactly what's going to happen. And that's my rant for today. My thanks again to Charles Davis of CBS Sports. Love, Charles. Hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. And as always, thanks for listening. If you don't like that, with Grant Napier. for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane. 
So shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.